The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 The Harrowing of Hell and the Veracity of Hope Uh, Let's follow on the crucifixion for a second and then touch very briefly um, on a theological question. Um, After the crucifixion, the, the, the New Testament has three structurally similar stories, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Stephen. And it's very helpful, perhaps, to compare and contrast these stories. Uh, John the Baptist speaks truth to power, as we say today, and he was, let's put it this way, we use the word scandal, that is to say, we become more fixated on our opponent than we are on what we're supposed to be, uh, apparently, devoting ourselves to. Uh, John got right, you could say, got right up in Herod's face and accused him of sinfulness and so on and so forth. And Herod was able to uh, dismiss him and, and uh, kill him. And no consequence came of that. The, the kingdom was not revealed under those circumstances because John had become too involved in the polemic uh, so that he it became justifiable in some at some level he was a he was a com, he was a competitor and he's dismissed and then Jesus who uh, refuses to get into that argument who refuses who stays silent or he says, "Are you a king? You have said it, and so on and so forth." He doesn't. He doesn't enter in as a as a competing, and he reveals the kingdom. Then then comes Stephen. The, the fact that the New Testament would have the story of Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles is part of the mystery of divine revelation, because it shows us the the passion story after the revelation. And we see it, it's, it's, it's a passion story that in some ways is presented to Paul, who's Saul, who observes the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming the truth of the cross. And the Sanhedrin reject his message. He says, you have always persecuted the prophets, and now you have persecuted the just one. And, they, and that's a very pro- prophetic thing to say. So he's saying you always persecute prophets, and that statement is prophetic, which means if he's right, he's in trouble. See what I mean? If, because he's behaving like one, they're going to persecute him, which they do. They take him out uh, and stone him. Stephen prays forgiveness on them. Now, when we talked about the passion story, there were so many details I left out. Uh, But one of the most important is, and I usually do it in the Monty Python version, uh, Jesus is uh, on the cross, so to speak. He looks at these people looking at him, and they're all angry, and they have their fists in the air, and they say, crucify him. And if you and I had been there in his place looking out, what we would have seen is ravenous wolves, and what Jesus saw was lost sheep. And so he said to this rabble, 
you probably wonder why I call this meeting. Hold still. I've got you just where I want you. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. This is absolutely essential. But theologically and anthropologically, they know not what they do. They're inside a black hole. They're caught up in this madness. And when you get caught up in this madness, you have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. So they didn't know what they were doing. They were caught up in social contagion, the, the mimetic phenomenon. You, we get caught up in it and we lose our individual focus altogether. And we're simply thinking with the mind of the mob. They know not what they do. They're doing what mobs always do. So, Father, forgive them. Now, this is absolutely essential uh, to the revelation, to pray forgiveness on one's persecutor. Jesus taught us to do that. When they persecute you, pray for your persecutor. Now, in Stephen's case, he kneels down and prays a prayer, handing his life over to God. And then he, and it doesn't say whether he's, how he says it, but then it says he says in a loud voice, Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. In a loud voice. Why would he pray in a loud voice? God's not hard of hearing. Well, somebody, Luke had to get it from somebody, somebody had to have heard it and so on, forget that. It says he prayed in a loud voice so that his, those who were stoning him would hear it. So they would realize that he is praying for them. So that one day, like Saul on the road to Damascus, so that one day the nickel might drop and they might realize, they might come to their senses and realize that guy we killed prayed for us. That's a tremendously powerful shattering of the of the delusion that mobs get into. But when he said that, the text in, in Acts of the Apostles says, they covered their ears and led him out and stoned him to death. Now this is a very important thing. Because before the revelation, you don't have to cover your ears. They, do not, they know not what they do. They have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. But when the revelation has already occurred, and been proclaimed, Stephen proclaimed it. After it's proclaimed, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's too late. You can't pretend not to know what you know. But you have to do something. Mobs always want, mobs are like animals in heat. They want to get the job done. And they don't want these moral quibbles coming in. So we humans now, after the crucifixion, after the revelation, we can only do these things by covering our ears, which means now we're morally complicit. You see what I mean? Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I always, I always conflate these two scenes. And I, I have Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, except for those two guys in the back with their hands over their ear. <laughs> because they're complicit in their ignorance. So after the revelation, and to the extent that the revelation has impacted us, we, we become complicit to the extent that we uh, keep it out, try to keep it out. So that's very 
important because it, it's a commentary on what happens after the revelation, how, how fallen humanity tries to fend off the revelation. And it explains much that goes on in, in the world at any time, including our time. We try various ways to close our ears to it, to keep it out of the picture so it doesn't, as uh, Father said last night, so the Christian bother is not uh, doesn't impinge on us at these critical moments. So far we've seen the crucifixion from the point of view of humanity and its impact on humanity. But what we haven't yet done is see the crucifixion from the point of view of the Trinity and what it means, what what uh, God has done and what God has risked almost in, redeem, in offering us redemption. You know, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the agony in the garden when Jesus prays that the cup pass uh, is not primarily, I would say, uh, a, a anticipation of this of the terrible pain and and death that's to follow the next day, but the interruption of his life with the Father. He is nothing but that. He is nothing but his relationship to the Father, and he anticipates an interruption in that relationship. And lo and behold, the most shocking thing about the crucifixion and the proof almost that uh, of its validity and the authenticity of it is the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can be absolutely sure that Christ said that on the cross because I guarantee you the evangelist would not have put it in had he not said it. It made their job immensely more difficult. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction. And we we say, well, that's the first line of the psalm which ends in a more reconciling tone and all of that. But I think that's, and again, this is based on von Balthasar's reflections. I think we have to take it seriously that there is a a break in the Trinity which is inconceivable. Inconceivable. I remember I gave this talk in uh, at St. Patrick's Seminary in San Francisco and one of my friends uh, was in uh, the audience and when I began on this part of the reflection, he literally broke out in a cold sweat. And uh, he had to pull off the road driving home that night uh, because uh, he thought about what that means, that the Trinity, that there, that there would be a break between the Father and the Son, a momentary break, but a break in which the whole universe holds its breath. Because that had that break persisted, the entire universe would have collapsed. Because we are held, creation is held in being by the Trinitarian gravitational field. And to break that 
is to have the whole thing fall apart. So it's a, it's an act of self-donation on the part of the Trinity to the rending of the Father and the Son uh, in a cosmic version of the, of the uh, Abraham and Isaac story almost. They're in, in, it's immensely complicated. But uh, Benedict XVI shows what a student of von Balthasar's he is when he says what happens at the, at the cry of dereliction is that the dialogue, which is the axis of the whole world, the dialogue between the Son and the Father, is interrupted, is momentarily interrupted. There is no communication between the Father and the Son, and the Son is nothing but that. And so he is God-forsaken. God has become God-forsaken. The God we know in Christ is a God who knows God-forsakenness. A God who joins us in our God-forsakenness. A God who experiences God-forsakenness so that he can descend to the very bottom of the loveless world. There to meet the other God-forsaken creatures. So that our God-forsakenness, we can never be alone in our God-forsakenness after that. This is an unbelievable thing. However God-forsaken we might be, we we are never alone in it. Christ is with us there. The God by whom we feel forsaken is at our side in our God-forsakenness. This is an unbelievable thing. And is at the side of all human beings, past, present, and future, in what, at whatever degree of God-forsakenness they find themselves. This is really the amazing theology of Holy Saturday, which von Balthasar opened up. It'll take a century uh, to to try to come. If if I mean it's such a mystery, can we ever? But we will, no doubt, have to clarify it and and sort it out, because in order to present himself to the dead, the fallen, in past, present, and future, without overwhelming them, you see, God treasures our freedom. So when we encounter the living God, if he manifests himself as he did on Mount Tabor, then one's yes is simply pulled out of one. You see what I mean? If you see him in all his glory, then it's hardly a, a, an authentic decision on your own because how could you do otherwise? So he presents himself to us in its in his most humble, most impotent form of the dead corpse who's God forsaken so that our yes will be a free yes, not one overwhelmed by the glory of the revelation so that it's hardly a free decision at all. 
So this this is just a great mystery, and it's confusing even to try to formulate it in a, this way. But just to, in a way, to flag this Holy Saturday as what may in fact be the real heart and soul of the Christian mystery. And to think here we are 2,000 years from it. You know, it, it took the first Christians three or four centuries to hammer out the key doctrines of our faith because this thing that had happened to us was so overwhelming and so inexplicable. It didn't have the vocabulary or the mental concept to to do justice to it. And so that's where we have the church fathers wrestling with these things. And that took three or four centuries. And, you, you know, we like to think that it's all settled. Well, the creed is settled. But what are the implications of it? We continue to journey and discover as we go. And in our time, I think quite extraordinarily, uh, we've had this this missing part of the triduum uh, brought to our attention. And the possibilities there are staggering. Hansers von Balthasar is, I think, the great theologian of the 20th century. And I think Benedict XVI thinks so as well. And in in a way, von Balthasar is is the Thomas Aquinas of our day. It will take us centuries to unpack what he has done, an immense contribution to a Christian theology. And he's his most, in a, uh, I suppose his most seminal insight is that we have overlooked Holy Saturday. And we have to rethink Holy Saturday. Now when we say, as I said in an earlier session, history takes time and God gives it time. He, he gave us freedom and in order for uh, us to choose love we have to be free and therefore... He can't just cram the revelation down our throat. And he has to provide, he has, he reveals himself to us as we're on a need to know basis in a way. As we're capable of absorbing, assimilating it, it's revealed to us. And, and we grow and recognize the journey into the mystery of Christianity and the Trinitarian mystery is constant and and, and probably forever will continue, I, I hope, in the next life. But the question is, what happened on Holy Saturday, the lacuna, the, the gap between the crucifixion and resurrection? Well, we, we're told, and our creed tells us, he descended into hell. And there, there have been versions of that, theological versions of that, and very many uh, artistic attempts at that. And so on. Von Balthasar offers a very striking and I think tremendously fruitful line of thinking about it. And that is that Christ descends into the world of the doomed, the world of the unrepentant, the world of the unforgiven. If history takes time and God gives it time, there's a very serious theodicy problem. Namely, how about all those people that never got wind of it? What's going to happen to them? There are plenty alive today. 
that haven't gotten wind of it, and a whole lot who haven't gotten a very good version of it. What about them? They never had a chance. Von Balthus says history is a is a mutual intensification of the yes and the no to Christ. But a whole lot of people never had an opportunity to say yes. So what about them? To make a very long and very complicated story very short, Christ descends as pure impotence as a dead man into the realm of the dead, into the realm of the lost, into the realm of the uh, of where he can encounter the dead and encounter the dead at the moment of death, I would say, because we're we're talking here about something that doesn't that doesn't keep chronological time. We're into uh, a a world beyond time, where time is in abeyance. Christ descends into into the realm of the dead because if you want to extend the invitation to every single human being who ever lived, how can you do it? What do they all have in common? They all die. You see? That they have in common. So if you can encounter them all, and we Christians look forward with a certain amount of trepidation to this encounter because it is the moment of judgment. It's the moment where we encounter full life in the face of which we will realize what a shabby version of it we pulled off. And 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 encounter the suffering we will uh, experience at the realization that we had an opportunity to be saints and we didn't fulfill it. So that's the judgment. So we are we have been given an anticipation of that judgment and it's it's a sobering one. Other people have not been given the anticipation of it. But the descent into hell tells us, as von Balthasar analyzes it, that every human being who has ever lived encounters the dead Christ, the crucified one, at the moment of death, and has that opportunity to say yes or no at that moment. And we don't know what that would consist of. It, it, it's not wise to try to over-imagine it or over-define it. But it is, I think, an essential ingredient in understanding this, the patience of God with human history. History takes time. God gives it time. It takes a long time for this revelation to develop. But meanwhile, the people who haven't been exposed to it are not left out. Christ went into the realm of the dead in order to be there when they arrive, beginning with the very first human being, in order to give them an encounter with full, the full, fully lived life that he represents and invite them into the Trinitarian embrace. And the question is, will anybody refuse the invitation? 
And von Balthasar has a little book called Dare We Hope That All Men Are Saved, in which he says we must not sell short God's mercy, nor must we uh, overestimate the obstreperousness of human sinfulness in the face of such glory and such love. Uh, that, it, that this encounter might very well be capable of melting Hitler's heart and uh, having him fall to his knees weeping. So we, we, we must realize this is a very powerful encounter. But it's dealt with in terms of the sort of iconography of, Christian, uh, of the Christian story and this little reference to the descent into hell. It's a part of the overall accounting for things. If you try to account for things and you don't say that, then people are going to say, wait a minute, how about all those people? They're taken care of. They're taken care of. It's very controversial. Uh, it's very controversial because von Balthasar does not say uh, that there is no hell. There has to be a hell. Theoretically, in case somebody's stupid enough to say no for all eternity. Um, but it doesn't have to have anybody in it. The church has canonized thousands of saints, and but it has never condemned a single soul, including Judas. So we just don't know. But the church tells us we must pray for the whole world, and we, sh and we wouldn't be enjoined to do something that was absurd. In other words, if... If it were impossible that the whole world might be saved, why would the church ask us to pray for the whole world? I wanted to begin, though, with a reflection on the, uh, the resurrection. Uh, and the, the most important thing about the resurrection is that it happened. It's real. It's not a nice story. It's not a metaphor. Uh, it's not a, it, it's not a psychological experience. It's an event. He was dead. He was a corpse, and uh, he was raised to a new life, a risen life, a resurrected life. This resurrected life, we know if you take if you read the gospel seriously, you realize it must have happened, because nobody would have made it up the way it appears in the story. Uh, in the story, people saw the resurrected Christ and still doubted. Now, if you were making it up, you wouldn't have it be, you wouldn't have it be that way. Uh, the people saw the, the risen Lord and didn't recognize him. That's very typical. Again, you wouldn't, you wouldn't concoct it that way. And all kinds of other things. So it's clear that he rose from the dead. And it's just immensely important that we cling to that as a literal reality. He is in the category of one. He rose from the dead. He broke the power of death for all of us. He broke the power of death to demonstrate to us and to the world that it is an unreal power. So this is, this is the liberating reality. We have been freed from death. 
The hard part is getting it through our thick skull. Because everything about us, our, our reflexes, our animal reflexes, and our human reflexes that have been conditioned by our fallen, fearful uh, history, all of these reflexes uh, are predisposed to have us recoil uh, from death. And we all know death is the enemy. It's true. But we attribute to it more power than it now has. Uh, it has been robbed of its power at the resurrection. We also know that the resurrection happened because of its effect on those who encountered the risen Christ and who, and who came to believe. That is to say, before the resurrection, the disciples were cowardly, they fled, uh, they, did, they were confused, and so on and so forth. And three days later, if you leave out, leave out all the stories about the resurrection, you just look at the disciples on Thursday and Friday, and then you look at them on Monday to use our <laughs> calendar, and suddenly on Monday, they were courageous, unbelievably courageous. They all went off and became martyrs. So something must have happened that made that transition. And that thing was the resurrection. It actually happened. So how do we know the resurrection happened? We know, we know the resurrection happened because a trusted friend had a trusted friend, had a trusted friend who had a trusted friend who had a trusted friend who saw the risen Christ. In other words, it's come down to us like that. Eyewitnesses. Not all the eyewitnesses believe. So that's part of the mystery. That shows you it's real. That shows you it's still, our freedom is still intact. It's not so powerful that everybody dropped their resistance instantly. No, you want to put up your resistance, you still can. You see what I mean? So again, it's, it's the preservation of our freedom and our, and our dignity, really, that comes with our freedom. Not everybody said yes to it. But those who did were totally transformed. And, who be, and they began to behave in incredibly heroic and courageous ways in the face of death. So, the resurrection. What I want to do now is just touch on, this is a review, and then I'll come back to the resurrection in a second. But let's review kind of what we talked about. The question, and I probably should have started with these questions because it's one way of organizing the, our, our thoughts. Uh, but one approach to the Christian revelation is to say, if Christ was incarnate, crucified, and risen, uh, he came to save us. And we're so lost in what it is we need to be saved from, we, we don't even know what that's about. So we have to interpret our own fallen condition in light of the cure. In other words, we don't know what the disease is. All we know is the cure. And what we have to assume is that the cure was appropriate to the disease. And so uh, here we have the cure. Here we have what it took to save us. 
And so on the basis of that, we can analyze back to try to find out what our predicament is. What did it take to save us? It took the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. There were all kinds of other things. Pentecost, ascension, we could go on and on. But let's keep it simple. Uh, three, three bullet points. <laughs> uh, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. In a very simplistic way, this is obviously oversimplified. Why did it take the incarnation? It took the incarnation because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And because we haven't gotten a good glimpse of him. We haven't gotten a good, long, loving look at him. And therefore, we start imitating each other. And that gets us into that whole mimetic problem and the violence and conflict that comes from that, as a result of which we find a scapegoat and invent religion, archaic religion, and all of its, uh, all of its later uh, manifestations. Well, so we're made in the image and likeness of God. That's why we need, that's what we need to see a model of what it means to live the Trinitarian life in a human form. Christ shows us the Trinity, the Trinitarian love life in a human form. And therefore now we have a model. We're, we are imitative. We need a model. We now have one. The, Interesting thing about this model, and maybe I'll talk about this tomorrow morning. Unlike other models, other models, when we imitate them, we lose our uniqueness. So if I imitate uh, who? I don't know who. Michael Jordan. Does anybody remember Michael Jordan? (laughs) I don't know who the latest. Anyway, if I imitate somebody... Then, uh, and they may be very, it may be somebody worthy of imitation. We have the communion of saints. And they're, they're in a different category in a way. But to the extent that I, well, let's put it this way. If I imitate somebody, I become like that person. And to that extent, I may diminish my own uniqueness because I imitate in them something that's unique to them. If I imitate Christ, there's only one thing to imitate about Christ. He said it over and over again. I I only do what I see the Father doing. I and the Father are one. So all that we can imitate in Christ is is His imitation of the Father. Or put it this way. He said, I only come to do the will of the one who sent me. If we imitate Him, we do the will of the one who sent us. And the one who sent us, sent me and you and you and you, it's, we each have a different uh, vocation. So if we imitate Christ to do the will of the one who sent us, we become as unique as we can be. It's the only imitation that brings out the full uniqueness of our existence. Now, when we imitate saints, we are, imi- we are in line with Christ because we're imitating someone who's imitating someone who's imitating someone who's imitating Christ. So still in all, it's very important to have these intermediary models that lead us to Christ. That's, that's part of a rich cultural environment. It's not just me and Jesus. It doesn't work that way. 
has to come from our parents and those who have influenced our faith and so on. So we need the incarnation because we need that example. We need the crucifixion because because the, the way we solve our problems, the way we turn our own sin into righteousness on the cheap is by... Uh, conjuring up uh, idolatries based on social contagion and uh, victimization and uh, collective madness and so on and so forth. The, the scene on Golgotha is structurally identical to the, to the primordial scene that's been going on, on on this planet since the beginning of human culture. And the cross reveals it for what it is, uh, makes it possible for us to hear the cock crow, recognize what we have done, recognize that we too are crucifiers. The two great conversions in the New Testament are, are Peter. He was already, he's a believer, but he realizes when he hears the cock crow that even though he was so courageous, he was willing to go down with the ship. Uh, but then at the last moment, he was cowardly and joined the crowd. He realizes that when he hears the cock crow and Peter, I mean, excuse me, Paul, on the road to Damascus, he realizes that he got caught up in the crowd, and and so on. So this is this this is what the the, the crucifixion does for us. We have to have that. Without the crucifixion, nothing would have changed. Without the revelation of the crucifixion, we would have remained slaves to the kingdoms of this world which are under the control of Satan, the accuser. See? The one who creates... Satan sows discord and then creates harmony on the cheap by uniting people in their animosity towards one figure or some historical enemy or something like that. That's very simplistic answers to the question, why the incarnation, why the crucifixion? Why the resurrection? I'm, I'm going to, for life, to, to abbreviate things, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from that same article I read to you this morning. I apologize for doing it, but it keeps me from going on and on. There is also an interesting uh, quibble in the interpretation of a, a very important passage in uh, Letter to the Romans, which says, because of... Sin, all men have died. Very important passage in Romans. The Orthodox, there's a very strong tradition in the Orthodox world, which interprets, because I don't know Greek well enough to be able to parse this, but there is an Orthodox tradition, which is a perfectly legitimate reading of that text, to read it as follows. Because of death, all men have sinned. Not because of sin all men have died, but because of death all men have sinned. And uh, if that's the case, all the more reason for the resurrection. Because of because we try to outfox death by moving it around and pointing it in some other direction, and so on. So let me just read these. I hope this. It's completely out of context. Not completely, but somewhat out of context. It starts with a quotation from Hansers von Balthasar, Swiss theologian. He says, There are many ways 
in which even that death which is appointed for the body, although it is a physical event, can be assimilated in advance to that spiritual event that it is meant to be and shall be whether or not one wishes it to be, namely, the handing over of corporeality to the giver who fashioned the dust of earth into a human instrument. This is an opportunity. I know it's quite dense. There are many ways in which even that death which is appointed for the body, although it is a physical event, can be assimilated in advance to that spiritual event that it is meant to be and shall be whether or not one wishes it to be. Namely, the handing over of corporeality, our bodily existence, to the giver who fashioned the dust of the earth into a human instrument. So death is the opportunity to hand one's life over. The, he goes on. The Christian attitude to the body will be governed by this final sacrifice, which he is to perform as a conscious act, even in health and active life. He will make the coming final surrender of corporeality the inner meaning of all his action. So, you know, I, I, I've never had an unrecorded thought. And I, as you can see, uh, and uh, I remember some years ago seeing some comment by someone which was brilliant and I loved it. Uh, he said, uh, we are not here to uh, sell cassette tapes. We, <laughs> we, we are here to die. And it was a refreshing reminder. So it turns out that dying because of the resurrection, you see, this is not some, this is not some stoicism about the inevitability of death. You see, it just sort of slowly overtakes us. But precisely because of the resurrection we have been given an opening so that with all of its terrors, with all of its terrors, this is not a, some recipe for, the, you know, wrapping the, drapery, wrapping the drapery over your couch about you and lying down to pleasant dreams, that kind of idea. Not at all. No, it's supposed to, be, remember Jesus, let this cup pass, sweating blood. It's, it will be that. It's, I had a friend who died... I went to see her just a few days before she died. There were people waiting outside the hospital room to see her. She says, Gil, go out there and tell those people, I do not want to have to die a heroic death. <laughs> they were all her admirers, you know. They were they wanted to come in and see her and her heroic. She says, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want the pressure. <laughs> so, this doesn't mean that it doesn't have all those horrors for us, or those fears. But it does mean that that's the opportunity that all of us have as mortal creature uh, to give our lives to the creator of them.
and then my two paragraphs of purple prose. Since death is the one thing that cannot be fully secularized, those lost in the secular wasteland will eventually turn to death, as fallen humanity always has, siding with death against death, turning death into a cure for death, eluding death by exploiting its mystique and becoming its pious accomplices. In a post-religious world, both those who are desperate for meaning and those who have despaired of it will find in death an unspoken organizing principle. Whether fleeing from it or flirting with it, whether bound to it by fear or fascination, death eventually becomes the default preoccupation, the chief obsession of those who come to regard it as a final incontrovertible fact. What comes to me right now is a conversation I had recently about, I don't even know what it's called, but there are what used to be uh, boxing matches or wrestling or something, and now it's extreme. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know what the word for that is, but it's pay-for-view and all that. It's the gladiatorial mm -hmm. combat coming within an inch of death. And the fact that audiences are paying to watch this is part of the necrophilia of our time. And it's, it's turning to death or the threat of death or the, the, the little energy that comes from being close to death that is part of a, a sickness that comes over us when we have lost touch with this tradition. At the resurrection, the power of death was broken, but not the fact of death. Only by acknowledging that fact and accepting it as our opportunity to enter into the Paschal drama with Christ can we keep from slipping back into the old religious swamp out of which we were dredged at Easter. Post-Christian culture bereft of religious vigor is becoming such a swamp, a culture of death, threatened from without by a resurgence of pre-modern forms of sacred violence. It is inwardly imperiled by post-modern forms of nihilistic resignation. What's going on in our world today cries out for the resurrection because without it, we fall back into that with this longing for transcendence. There's no transcendence. What's left? There's only one thing that cannot, that hasn't been completely leveled, and that's death and the mystery of death, and we turn it into some kind of pseudo-religion.